Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 63rd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're covering another exciting update from the governor's office here in the state of North Carolina as part of his ongoing support for clean energy. We'll hear some short updates from the governor himself, along with some commentary from a few familiar faces in the North Carolina energy sphere. Up first, though, we've got a few news stories and updates to share. First up, as you may recall, House Bill 951, the comprehensive energy legislation signed into law last year directed Duke Energy Carolinas and Duke Energy Progress to institute a new competitive procurement program for renewable energy set to move forward after the current competitive procurement for renewable energy program sunsets at the end of this year. The current CPRE program was directed through the previous comprehensive energy legislation HB 589. In this new program under 951, the utilities are directed to procure an additional 2,660 megawatts of renewables over a 45-month period. To kick off this whole process, both Duke utilities sent a letter to the commission recently indicating a desire to kick off a formal proceeding, while stating intentions to move forward with a stakeholder process to shape the next iteration of a competitive procurement program. The jury is still out who will be invited to these meetings and what may come as a result including what sorts of renewables will be on the table for competitive bidding, but we'll provide more info as this plays out at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. You can find a link to the Charlotte Business Journal story from John Downey in the show notes. In other exciting news on the national level, the U.S. Department of Energy just announced the launch of a Clean Energy Corps to research, develop, demonstrate, and deploy clean energy solutions. They are also planning to hire upwards of 1,000 new employees to help implement the clean energy components of the infrastructure bill that passed last fall. A portal is already live for interested candidates to apply to join the Clean Energy Corps. We've included a link to the announcement and portal page in today's show notes. And on today's episode, as you may have seen, North Carolina has been home to some major clean energy news in the past week or so with the signing of Executive Order 246 by Governor Roy Cooper, which included a number of provisions expanding greenhouse gas reduction and EV targets, while outlining a variety of initiatives focused on equity and justice. But rather than me tell you about all the details of the executive order, we're going to bring on a number of guests today who will break down exactly what this news means for the energy industry here in North Carolina. So, cue the music. Clean energy. Clean energy. Before we get to the conversations with our guests, let's tune in to the signing event at NCANT State University to hear more from the state leaders who brought this order to fruition. First up, let's bring in the governor himself to talk about his administration's approach to clean energy and why he decided to sign this EO. And one, one of the main goals of my administration is to move us to a clean energy economy to fight the existential threat of climate change and to create good paying jobs that's gonna put more money in people's pockets. So what have we done so far? Uh, a couple of highlights in, in my administration. First is, Executive Order 80, 
in 2018, where we set statewide uh, greenhouse gas emission standards, set a goal for North Carolina reductions. Uh, we set out in that order priorities to get more electric vehicles on the road told the rest of the country and the world that North Carolina cares about clean energy and we want to go there. Then I issued uh, Executive Order 218, which encourages us to move to more wind industry, uh, energy and offshore wind uh, energy. Uh, we have set up our Environmental Justice and Equity Board at the Department of Environmental Quality. The previous Secretary, Michael Regan, started that. Dr. Johnson, you're going to hear from him today. Uh, we do understand the effects of pollution and climate change on these communities, and this order is going to emphasize doing significantly more. Proud to have some mem members of the Andrea Harris Task Force here, which has been looking at health effects on people and how environmental pollution can, can uh, affect the health of, of people, particularly in marginalized communities. Then, this past legislative session, the bipartisan House Bill 951 that sets a carbon standard, required carbon standard for our utility sector, reducing uh, greenhouse gases from the utility sector by 70% over the 200,005 levels by 2030, and net zero by 2050. We have begun the apprenticeships for young people and I'm grateful for those. So today, I will sign Executive Order 246, which is another important step to increase the goals of greenhouse gas reductions, move more quickly to clean transportation, and to curb environmental injustices that affect our most vulnerable communities. We must build a clean, equitable economy for all North Carolinians. Now, let's pass it over to our new Secretary of the Department of Environmental Quality, Elizabeth Beiser, to hear her comments on the importance and significance of this latest move by the administration. Well, thank you, Governor, for your continued leadership on these important issues. You have consistently set goals to address the impacts of climate change, and you've prioritized a just transition one that doesn't leave any North Carolinian behind. And today's actions are another step forward on that path. This administration is taking a whole of government approach in reducing emissions. By addressing the two largest sectors, transportation and power, we are ensuring that every action we take will have an impact. Today's actions build on the success of Executive Order 80 and House Bill 951. Setting our emission reduction goal to 50% statewide by 2030 and pushing for even more zero emission vehicles on our roadways. And as we prepare our state's workforce for the jobs in these industries, it's a reminder that what's good for the environment is also good for our economy. Achieving these goals will bring environmental, economic, and public health benefits to North Carolinians. Just as important are the measures to make sure that those benefits reach every community in our state as we advance our climate and energy goals. All right. So again, you just heard comments from Governor Cooper and Secretary Beiser at the executive order signing, which took place on January 7th at NCANT State University. I now want to introduce our first guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast, 
Our guest is the climate and environment reporter at the News and Observer in Raleigh. Much of his coverage focuses on the impacts climate change is already having in North Carolina. At the NNO, our guest has also covered eastern North Carolina's uneven recovery from Hurricanes Matthew and Florence and widespread contamination of the Cape Fear River with novel PFAS. During the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest also reported extensively on North Carolina's vaccine rollout. Before coming to the News and Observer, our guest reported at the Wilmington Star News. He is a graduate of Ohio University and grew up in Pittsburgh. Friends of the pod, please welcome Adam Wagner of the News and Observer. Adam, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Well, so as, as I just alluded to, uh, last week on Friday, Governor Cooper signed Executive Order 246 at North Carolina A&T University out in Greensboro, which focused on a number of provisions across the clean energy and envir- environmental justice uh, spheres. And, uh, you know, I-, I would love just at a high level if you could help digest and break down what provisions were included in the executive order and kind of what they mean for us moving forward. Sure. Yeah. So there were basically two really big pieces of this. And one of them was transportation, where this new executive order calls for the development of a clean transportation plan that's going to look a lot like the clean energy plan that we we saw a couple of years ago that then ended up shaping HB 951 this year. And it also touches on environmental justice. It begins to really sort of make concrete some of the things, some of the conversations that we've seen around environmental justice in North Carolina under this administration, including putting an environmental justice lead in each agency, each cabinet agency, who's really going to start to talk about how that agency has disproportionate impacts on on certain parts of our state. And then from there, they're going to develop these, these plans that sort of shape how the agencies communicate with different communities. So with, with Spanish-speaking communities, with communities that don't have access to the internet, things like that so that everyone has kind of fair information about what the government's trying to do. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Is I'm, I'm sure you had heard throughout the process of 951 and then after final passage of, of 951, there were some concerns about uh, the inclusion of low and moderate income communities and their voices and perspectives. So I think, you know, this is a, a really good start to that conversation of, implementation here into 2022 between, you know, all of the the various provisions in this executive order and also with the implementation of, of the carbon plan this year as well. So you you had mentioned the, the clean transportation plan. There are also a number of other uh, analyses that are directed uh, to various state agencies and the governor's office under this executive order. I, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, you know, is there is there some some real meat that can kind of help to move forward the the clean uh, energy industry here in North Carolina, and and what will these analyses and processes kind of surmount to over the coming years? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think in one sense, what the things in this order really do are tell us where we are. Um, I find that in my reporting, I'm, I'm referencing the greenhouse gas inventory from 2019, which is really 2017 numbers, which it's not where we are right now. So there's going to be a fresh greenhouse gas inventory by the end of this month. 
which is really helpful in terms of just knowing where there needs to be progress, knowing what's working and what isn't. The other thing is that DHHS is gonna has been assigned the task of working to really evaluate climate change's impact on human health. And this is something that we looked at fall of 2020 now in, in a package called Beyond the Beach and had a hard time getting some of some of the data. There's a lot of data about emergency rooms out there that DHHS has that can really help us kind of get our arms around what does climate change mean for disease? What does climate change mean for heat health impacts, things like that? And so they are going to start kind of compiling some of that and making that more public. And some of that's already happening, but it, it really can happen in a more concerted way. As far as clean energy goes, the other piece, we talk a lot about equity and equality in the, in the transition. And there are a couple pieces in here that are really designed to make sure that the people who benefit from this transition are not just white people, which is really important. Obviously, there's a reason they held that event at NCANT State University, which is the biggest HBCU in the country. And there are provisions in there to, to up the diversity of the clean energy workforce, which is good to see. There's also some clean energy apprenticeship programs. So really kind of getting people in on the ground floor as this transition continues. And, you know, you bring up an important point about baselining and getting a better understanding of where we are through all of these analyses is that really sets a strong foundation as we work through the carbon plan process and we work through the process of the, the clean transportation plan and other analyses and in determining what paths we need to take moving forward, we need to better understand where we're currently at. So I'm glad that you, you had mentioned those uh, aspects of, of this executive order. I'm curious uh, because I've I've received some questions on on this topic. How does how does this executive order tie back to 951 that was passed last year? Is there any sort of direct line there, or is this seen as kind of the next step in moving forward towards that clean energy future? Yeah, I, I think I think it's more a next step. I think that we've, and I think it's it's a fairly logical progression if you're. If you're going to have more electric cars, then before you address that, you need to address where the electricity is coming from. So 951 and then before that, the clean energy plan really started to kind of check those boxes. And then the sort of next big thing to address is transportation. So if you know that where the electricity is going to come from is, is wind, solar, things like that, which we, we don't know know yet, but we have, we know that Duke Energy is going to have to move away from coal at least and likely away from at least some natural gas in the very near future. Then electric cars and electric buses make a lot more sense. To me, it's this appearance of incremental intentional progress that we've taken over the years, right? Where we're continually kind of building on the the work of you know, previous stakeholder groups and previous legislation and executive orders that have passed, you know, thinking all the way back from Senate Bill 3 all the way up through, you know, uh, 589, Executive Order 80, 951, and now this, 246. Um, it's an exciting sort of, you know, building the skyscraper from the foundation up. I am curious, uh, in, in your reporting at all, have you had a chance to 
to look at where this executive order places North Carolina in comparison to other states or other southeastern states in setting some of these targets? Virginia obviously has the clean car standards. That's sort of the, from an environmental standpoint, that's sort of the, the gold standard in the southeast right now. Um, I, I'm not sure if if 246 will get North Carolina that far, but it, it's clearly kind of pointed in, in that general direction. Let's talk a little bit more about the equity and justice components of 246. What factors helped to ensure we saw an executive order with a large focus on communities of all backgrounds in this conversation? Yeah, I think that the outcry from the environmental justice community after 951 and the sort of the lack of consumer protections in that bill really contributed, really sort of upped the urgency here on environmental justice and and led directly to some of the things that we see here. But at the same time, the environmental justice concerns that we see addressed in this executive order have been out there for a long time. They've been out there for the entirety of the Cooper administration. Um, cumulative impacts are something that you will hear about every time you listen to an EJ advisory board meeting. And this is really the first time that they're addressed in a, a more concrete way in a government document, executive order or law kind of thing. Diving into that equity piece a little bit more, can you talk a little bit more about the importance of equity to this administration and what they have done to date in this area? Yeah. So just to establish a very, very most basic baseline, environmental justice is the idea that that everyone deserves has the same right to clean air, clean water, clean environment. Also to have a say in how permitting decisions are made, sort of what gets put into their communities. So in a lot of ways, this administration has focused on giving people a say. We see it with the Environmental Justice Advisory Board of DEQ right now, where there are, are there's a group of environmental justice leaders who get together every couple months and discuss various issues. They spend a lot of time talking about cumulative impacts, which are the, is the idea that basically impacts layer on top of each other. So if you're making a permitting decision, you can't make it in isolation. You have to make it considering what's already in that community. So if what is in your community is a coal-fired power plant, the impacts of anything else on top of that, you're going to suffer more severe impacts because of that, sort of a, a way of phrasing that. Then, so the way this is addressed in this plan and the way that sort of ongoing conversation has really shaped this plan comes back to those public participation plans where the governor and the agencies are acknowledging that state government has committed to environmental injustice in the past, like the highway through the Haytai community in Durham, that not only resulted in sort of the destruction of that community, but also had a negative effect on the air impacts right around that community. Things like Charlotte's West End, which is kind of surrounded by highways, come up frequently. So sort of an acknowledgement of those impacts, but also 
a, a plan to talk about those communities and involve those communities in what government is doing moving forward. Looking back, let's say, let's say you have you know a crystal ball to be able to look five years into the future. At that point in time, you look back at EO two forty six. Where does the it kind of stand in in the pathway of getting to that clean energy future? How how do you think we'll look back on it, and what sort of doors might it open? I think that as far as clean energy is concerned, the biggest thing that EO two forty six does is it goes in line with market forces already happening on electrical vehicles. So it begins to sort of put the weight of government a little more behind electric charging infrastructure. It seems to indicate that trucks and buses and things like that will be electric moving forward. And that's a pretty sizable market signal. If, if the government, if governments are buying only electric buses moving forward or only renewable gas buses, that's a shift. And it sets this goal of, of 1.25 million electric vehicles on the, on the road in North Carolina by 2030. That's a, a concrete step. And that's a much higher goal than I think it was the 80,000 by 2025 that was in EO 80. That's much more ambitious. And that's indicative, again, it's sort of the direction the market's going in. Yeah. I, the other the other thing that I'll, we can just quickly hit on to, I know this was towards um, kind of the end of, of some of your coverage of it, is, is talking about NCDOT and NCDOT's role relationship and kind of stance on building out that clean transportation future. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and DOT's sort of position and role in helping to kind of carry out some of the targets established in this EO246? So DOT's role in North Carolina historically has been the agency that builds the highways and the railroads and the ferries and that kind of thing. This seems... and. and as I noted in my story, when when EO80 was signed in 2018, the DOT secretary wasn't there. There was sort of a mentality at that point that climate change and green energy are the purview of DEQ and transportation builds the roads. So what we saw last Friday was a shift, at least in tone from that, where they are now saying that we have a role to play in this transition that's going on in North Carolina. And we intend to sort of lead this stakeholder process where we're going to consider all these things. One of those things that, that's kind of surprising is considering how to reduce the number of miles traveled by vehicles in North Carolina. At first blush, that seems sort of counter to what DOT would do. It, you know, it considers transit, it considers possibly rail. I'm, I'm just speculating here. But kind of getting around one person in one car driving to work and driving home from work. So that that's just a very different thing than what we've seen out of out of any Department of Transportation in North Carolina before. I know that we there's a lot of positive momentum behind DOT leading up to this executive order and we you know have Jen Weiss over there, who really is focused on, you know, the climate related issues and clean energy related issues and helping to implement some of the provisions and the clean transportation plan 
Uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to bring her on in a, a future episode to talk a little bit more about that. Adam, is, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you wanted to specifically make sure we made mention of? I think that the biggest thing anytime one of these executive orders is signed is that sort of it all comes down to implementation. We saw this, we're seeing this with 951 too, that we see what the goals are, we see what sort of the targets are, but how do we get there? And who's in the room, who's having the conversations and sort of when do these things become reality? Again, there are goals, also some things sort of left open-ended here. So there is room to continue watching this closely. I know the industry is, I know we are. And I think that we'll just see what direction this all goes in. Yeah, absolutely. Which makes me eager to you know stay on top of your reporting this year as there's going to be a lot going on uh, down at... Uh, especially the Utilities Commission, but at various state agencies as you know, various planning processes get kicked off as part of this executive order and as part of the carbon plan implementation. Uh, so, Adam, we really appreciate your reporting on, on these topics. We'll make sure to include a link to your story on EO246 in the show notes. Uh, but thank you again so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Yeah, thank you again for the invitation, Matt. I really appreciate it. Clean energy. Clean energy. And up next, I'd like to introduce someone who might be familiar to many of our listeners, but a voice you may not have heard before, as this is his first time on the podcast. This guest serves as executive director of the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association where he manages relationships and programs that serve NCSEA's membership, develops staff abilities, supports new technology markets, and increases business opportunities. Our guest is the former director of North Carolina's State Energy Office under Governors Purdue and McCrory. He has also participated in the executive development program at the University of North Carolina and completed executive education at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Specifically today, we'll be diving in with our guest on the EV components of the executive order, given his background and expertise in this space. Friends of the pod, please welcome Ward Lenz, Executive Director of NCSEA. Ward, welcome to the pod. Well, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast, Matt. And it's, it's not just my first time on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. It's my uh, first time on any podcast ever. This will be, I'm sure, the, the first of, of many to come after people listen to this episode and invites start flooding your inbox galore. So looking forward to you hitting the podcast circuit over the coming couple of weeks and months. So... Ward, the big energy news on the landscape here in North Carolina is the fact that Governor Cooper announced his latest executive order, EO246, uh, this past Friday, focusing on a number of new greenhouse gas, equity, and electric transportation targets. I know you were specifically at that event at the executive order signing at NCANT this past Friday. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's included in this executive order? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting executive order, and it's kind of the next step in the clean energy process. And it definitely builds on past executive orders and past legislation over the past uh, decades, many of which NCSEA has been a key part of. So when you look back at the history of clean energy, the Senate Bill three in two thousand seven was was pretty key to building up and getting folks comfortable with uh, clean energy and building up the market. And now we're to the point where uh, we're able to take that next step. 
other executive orders and legislation that have happened in the uh, past few years, as well as specifically H951, had targets for the electricity generation sector in North Carolina for carbon emissions. And so this executive order follows along with that and sets some some additional targets for economy-wide, as well as increasing the targets for electric vehicles on North Carolina roads. It's an interesting target of 1.25 million electric vehicles in North Carolina by 2030, uh, which is targeted about 50% of new electric vehicle purchases in that year. Right now, we're at anywhere from 1% to 2% electric vehicle purchases. But one of the things that we're seeing is that over and over again, auto manufacturers are uh, coming out with new new models. So while this is a good stretch target, I think it's, it's achievable. Another key component is, is looking at the environmental justice component of, of clean energy and, and energy as a whole and, and reviewing what happens with energy generation in, in society. Yeah, thanks for for laying all of that out, Ward. We're we're really excited about this this latest executive order. So one thing that you specifically mentioned that I think is catching a lot of attention uh, in this executive order is the ZEV goals in the state. One point two five million by twenty thirty, as you mentioned, along with a fifty percent uh, new vehicle sales target by twenty thirty. So just for comparison uh, here, you know, North Carolina's population is about 10 million plus or so. And I think we're, we're close to about eight or 9 million vehicles registered on the road. And, and right now, I think last I checked, we're probably somewhere in the ballpark of 20 to 30,000 EVs, but that's a significant ways to go between now and 2030. But at the same time, we're seeing a tremendous amount of growth in the EV sector, especially with all the new OEMs and models coming to the market this year. We're seeing, you know, Tesla take the market by storm in terms of sales. Last year, they had over a million new vehicle sales as well. So I'm curious from your perspective, is an executive order like this, you know, necessary for us to really move the needle in terms of EV adoption? Or are we kind of already on that path? And what does this EO signal to the market in general? Those are interesting questions. And uh, we are definitely on a path. Uh, and the market is moving. I think the executive order gives gives a little bit of strength and being able to recruit jobs and economic development in in line with those those efforts. And so a lot of those vehicle manufacturers and parts manufacturers, when they're looking at where they're going to be manufacturing and assembling vehicles or the components, they are looking at states that have mechanisms in place to advance electric vehicle technologies. And so this, along with other targets, is part of what helped land the Toyota announcement from last month, which was the largest, single largest economic announcement that North Carolina has ever had. One of the biggest jobs impacts, especially for a part of the state that often gets missed. All that is to circle back and saying, yeah, uh, you're, you're right, there's like eight eight to nine million vehicles in North Carolina right now. So 1.25 million electric vehicles by 2030 is about 15% of the market. But that's a process, takes eight to 10 years for uh, vehicles to age out of the, the marketplace generally. So it's it's just a, a long-term process, but we're getting there and it's, it's picking up speed so fast. Toyota 
uh, along with their announcement on uh, the battery plant in North Carolina, they also announced recently, I think it was 22 different models that they'll have available in the coming years. Uh, you mentioned Tesla take, uh, hitting a million deliveries just last year. And, you know, a number of uh, auto manufacturers, we don't want to play favorites among those, but the, the Ford Lightning pickup truck seems to be a real game changer. And I, what I've been seeing uh, from my friends and family is that that was a significant impact to their uh, perception on electric vehicles, is that now it's a pickup truck. And when, when there's electric uh, outages in your neighborhood from an ice storm or a snowstorm or whatever, that you can hook up your truck and keep your refrigerator running for days on end uh, so your food doesn't go bad or run your, your heating heating if you need to. So uh, it is it is transformative what's going to be coming in the next few years in the electric vehicle market. And on top of that, we just saw in the past couple of weeks, you know, Chevy announcing an electric version of their Silverado. And so you're you're spot on and, and we're starting to hit sectors of the market that previously weren't necessarily privy to electric vehicles. And I think this year in 2022 is going to be a really, really exciting year for EV rollout. You also mentioned a number of exciting economic development news here in North Carolina, talking about Toyota and their announcement made over in the Greensboro area with that battery facility. We've got a rival as well that's made a number of announcements about investments in battery manufacturing and in their their own operations and staff in the Charlotte area. So I, I wonder if this latest executive order coming from the governor's office is strategically timed with all of the announcements and momentum we've recently seen with new EV companies coming to the state of North Carolina. Does this executive order signal to other companies that North Carolina is ready to be a leader in the EV industry? I'm not sure if it's uh, strategically timed for that, but it definitely sends that message that that uh, North Carolina is open for business on the, the sales of electric vehicles, as well as the manufacturing of the uh, the final vehicle itself or the parts and components that go into that. It was good timing for the announcement last week, considering the many of the vehicle announcements have transitioned from their normal announcements of vehicles because they're, the vehicles are so technologically aligned now that a lot of the auto manufacturers are announcing during the consumer electronics show that took place. And so that basically is a magnification. And so it was, it was definitely good timing for the executive order to, to align with a lot of those vehicle announcements. I'll also add for, for listeners, Ward really helps to serve as one of NCSEA's subject matter experts in the EV industry. He was into EVs before EVs were cool. Uh, and, and, you know, if, for those that, that might know Ward or have been on video calls with him over the years, you've probably seen his diecast collection of electric vehicles where he's got the, the full fleet of Tesla vehicles uh, and a number of others. I want to commend Ward for you know his years of, of commitment to the EV space and seeing a lot of that play out right in front of us this year and, and, and last year is, is really exciting and I'm sure is exciting for someone like you. And so you know, there's a lot of momentum going on with electric vehicles across the entire country and economy. We've also seen market signals coming from the federal government as well. How does this latest executive order line up 
with some of the, the targets or goals that have been established at the federal level coming from this current administration? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. And, and uh, there is good alignment. The, the Infrastructure Act that just passed last fall at, in D.C., there's a lot of investment in the Infrastructure Act to ensure that we're moving forward and preparing for electric vehicles. And so there's components in that for ensuring there's adequate transmission and distribution of electricity, as well as that there's charging infrastructure so that when people buy an electric vehicle, they can charge it up. And for many of us with single family homes and garages, it's pretty easy to make sure our car electric vehicles are fully charged up. But uh, not everybody lives that way. People live in apartments. So we need to make sure that charging infrastructure is available for them, that there's infrastructure available so that if you're driving across country, it's available. Uh, so that's that's a key component of those that infrastructure bill is to prepare this. One, one thing I talk about is that there's uh, uh, sometimes angst in folks who are not necessarily familiar that is if we make a transition to electric vehicles that it's, it's dramatically increases electricity demand and requires new power plants. And one of the things we talk about is that to put things in perspective, as the back of the envelope uh, calculations pretty much hold true that an average for about 5% market share of electricity or of electric vehicles, that would increase uh, electricity demand by 1% nationwide. So it's a pretty small impact and, and we have a, a ramp up time to be able to handle that, that increased uh, electricity demand. But what that also does is it uh, dramatically decreases the, the demand for petroleum products. And so it's a very significant and beneficial trade-off uh, on energy source for uh, electric vehicles compared to gasoline-powered uh, versions. And it, it also means that as we clean up our grid, it means that the the environmental impact of those vehicles continues to get better. Uh, one of the things we talk about electric vehicles is that your your electric vehicle actually gets cleaner over time compared to a gasoline-powered version that, as it gets older, it uh, is, is, becomes more and more polluting. And we could... We could really go down the rabbit hole of, of benefits of, of EVs, and, and I would love to, um, but maybe we'll save that for a, a future episode. Um, and, and, you know, the one other interesting kind of tidbit that you, you hit on as well is, is the, the growth of, of energy demand from the grid as electric vehicles continue to penetrate the market. And, and, and I think that's, that's really significant as you look at just some of the, the trends that are taking place right now amongst utilities and electricity usage, even as you know population areas continue to grow, you're actually seeing demand for electricity go down due to energy efficiency and, and just lower consumption buildings and just smarter architecture and, and building practices. And so this really presents a new and unique business opportunity for utilities to continue to grow uh, load and and you know have uh, additional opportunities to sell electricity to consumers in in various markets so that is part of the reason why we've seen utilities across the country propose uh, a number of electric transportation pilots related to deploying ev charging infrastructure and evs but again that's that's a whole nother uh subject for another episode so 
One of the the more overarching themes within this executive order is equity, inclusion, and environmental justice. I think it's safe to say that we have a long way to go on this front, especially in the energy ecosystem. So why is it important that this executive order bring attention to this issue? Again, excellent question there, and and I'm I'm going to go back to one of the reasons you, you know you you mentioned that uh, I've been doing electric vehicles for a long time, and there's a there's reasons behind that, and one is uh, you know I really love the performance aspect of electric vehicles that they're off the line uh, they're going to be faster than anything else uh, out there. But another component is that uh, you know we we didn't call it environmental justice back in the day, but we did understand that there's huge local air quality impacts to vehicles. And those, those air quality impacts are generally hitting the, the youngest uh, in our population and the poorest because they're often concentrated in low-income communities, especially when we're doing uh, buses, whether they're school buses or transit buses, those emissions are in, often in low-income communities. And the emissions from buses and vehicles are primary triggers for asthma attacks. And in those communities, the an asthma attack of a child that requires an emergency room visit is huge impact for most people. And so, you know, it requires the hospital stay, the cost for that, as well as a parent taking off a day that they often don't have paid time off uh, to do so. It's So it's a huge health impact and financial impact. Uh, so one of the things that North Carolina has actually been a lead on is uh, development of electric school buses. You know, to tie to that is that uh, there have been studies in the past that showed that the air quality inside a school bus is worse than outside. And so if you convert that to electricity, uh, you're, you're presenting a, a better health uh, opportunity for kids, as well as if there's no wind and uh, the school bus is idling in the parking lot where the kids are lined up. Again, if there's no wind, the exhaust from the school bus stays at about the four foot level, uh, which is right at the nose level of kids. So again, we're, we're working on the, the not poisoning uh, kids or triggering asthma impact impacts that, that cause problems. And then, you know, additionally, we've talked about that we, we generate electricity in the U.S. as cost-effectively as possible, and that's been a mandate for more than a century, regulatory mandate, which is, you know, helps serve us well. One of the potential negative impacts is that in order to generate electricity cheaply, historically, we've been doing it in large centralized power plants, and they site those large power plants on the cheapest land that they can find, and that Cheap land is often in the lower income communities. And so those lower income communities are often the ones that have to then breathe the air from those power plants, whether they're the old uh, uh, dirty coal plants or even the more modern uh, natural gas plants still have significant uh, air emissions that the local community has the opportunity to, to breathe in. And so by transitioning and taking a look at emissions and the environmental justice impacts, taking a look at how the how our communities are impacted by those policies. And when uh, DEQ is approving permits for things that they need to take into consideration the environmental justice. Uh, when DOT is building roads, they need to take those impacts into account. You know, interesting talking about school bus idling. I remember 
uh, and probably as you do as well, uh, waiting for the school bus outside um, or waiting to get on a school bus outside of the school and, you know, breathing in all of those emissions and kind of just taking that as, as at its face value that that was kind of the norm and that was okay. And wow, what a transition that, you know, we're, we're in the midst of right now with being home to manufacturers like Thomas Built Buses over in High Point manufacturing electric school buses. We've also got Proterra just down the road in South Carolina manufacturing electric transit buses. So a lot of we're, we're home to a lot of that innovation and development here in the state of North Carolina, uh, which is so important to the conversation of equity and, and diversity. And, you know, also mentioned that in the executive order, uh, there was you know a directive for each cabinet agency to identify an environmental justice and equity lead as well, which I think is going to be really important as we move into the phases of, of implementation as part of this executive order, especially thinking about the clean transportation plan that's outlined in that executive order. Uh, you know, I, I'd imagine we'll see a fairly similar process to what we saw with the clean energy plan. And as we roll through that process, having that environmental justice and equity lens is going to be really important to make sure that when we're looking at EV charging infrastructure, that we're citing it in locations that's that are accessible to uh, diverse communities across the state, that we're looking at deploying EVs in a lot of these communities that you had talked about that are greatly impacted by emissions, just given the fact that they're located next to interstate highways and located next to bus depots, et cetera. So having that lens, I think, is is going to be really, really critical as we move into the implementation phase of this clean transportation plan outlined in the executive order. So overall, uh, Ward, how does or will this executive order empower state agencies to make movement towards our greenhouse gas and clean transportation targets in the state? Yeah, I'm glad you uh, circled around to that because as as part of the announcement uh, and the signing last week, uh, they reminded folks that the the executive order that was just issued, as well as H951 that passed last fall, were the they felt were the direct result of the stakeholder processes that have been done in the past, and that created the plans and the documentation about the value proposition uh, in order to get. The legislation passed and this executive order in place. And so to, to your point that you were asking about is that this also creates a stakeholder process, uh, actually a number of them to align with the, the governor's office and the, the legislature and the utility commission to ensure that all aspects, uh, uh, whether this it's state government uh, or policies are reflecting the protection of all communities in the state and that environmental justice and, and protection is included uh, in all those decisions and using that stakeholder process to identify and document and assess the value uh, and impact of those policies. We have our work cut out for us in 2022 between all of these various facets of the executive order along with HB 951 implementation 2022 is really going to be a pivotal year uh, in terms of the direction that we take towards clean energy and clean transportation deployment in North Carolina. And I'm really excited to see 
how it, it transpires throughout the, the whole year. So on that note, Ward, I, I again, I, I really want to thank you for taking some time to, to chat with us about this executive order and what it means for North Carolina. Um, it was it was great getting a chance to, to introduce you to the squeaky clean energy listeners and uh, looking forward to having you back on the podcast in the future. Thank you, Matt. This has uh, been fun. My key takeaway from today's episode is the importance of continued progress along our clean energy pathway. It would have been easy for the governor's office to sit back and relish in the success we've already achieved in clean energy to date in our state. Instead, they've chosen to continue our leadership in this sector of the economy due to the recognition that it's growing at breakneck speeds and we need to be ready to capitalize on that growth, especially positioning ourselves against other states who have signaled an eagerness to attract, grow, and retain clean energy. Even more so, it's incredibly humbling and reassuring to hear the governor state that much is still to be done on the topic of equity and justice, and hopefully this will be a very important consideration as we proceed through all of the plans and analyses outlined in this order. In case you'd like to read more about this executive order and what it does for the state, NCSEA will be sharing more information via our blog and social media channels shortly, so make sure to give us a follow. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. Speaking of bad jokes, or in this case, dad jokes, one of our guests on today's episode wouldn't let us go before he had a chance to share his. All right, this is uh, a dad joke I've been telling on golf courses for decades now. Was, uh, you know how geese migrate you know, twice a year. When you see them, they, they migrate in that V formation. Do you know why one one side of the V is longer than the other? Uh, it's because there's more geese on that side. And episode 63 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.